reliable. Well, especially in, in this market right now, tell, name an engine that you can buy for $1,000 that you know, has the potential NA to make 300 at the wheel or 500 uh, at, turbo, with yeah. a turbo, right? On stock and turbo. It, season, is, yeah. it is hard to argue with a K-series. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we've got Pete and Dave from Speed Academy joining us all the way from Canada. Our Speed Academy is one of our favourite channels on YouTube. They cover some really interesting projects and... They have a really down-to-earth approach to their projects as well. They both come from the print media car magazine background and uh, print media obviously these days it's uh, definitely on the decline so Pete and Dave saw the opportunity to start the Speed Academy YouTube channel and they've gone from strength to strength. Really interesting and broad-ranging conversation within this interview. So we start by getting a little bit of background as to how they actually got started wrenching on cars. And they've actually followed a pretty similar path to myself in so much as there's no formal qualifications, which I think is really important for those who are maybe just building a project car in their back shed, just understanding that, no, it's not absolutely essential to become a qualified mechanic in order to build your car, build your engines, etc. As well as this, we dive into what it takes to become a successful YouTube channel. And I'm sure a few people listening to our podcast have maybe have considerations about whether or not it's viable to actually go full time and, and make a living out of a YouTube channel. And obviously, there's a lot of people doing exactly that. Uh, so we talk about the pros and cons of becoming a YouTuber and what's actually necessary and how hard it is to get it to a point where you're going to make a living from it. A couple of my favourite projects that Speed Academy are currently have on the chopping board is their JDM Legends series, which covers uh, Pete's R. 34 Nissan GTR, still one of my favourite cars of all time, and also Dave's JZA80 Supra. Uh, these cars are definitely two of the best cars, I think it's safe to say, that ever came out of Japan, maybe best cars, at least most popular cars. So we, we dive into what it takes to modify a car that is now also skyrocketing in price as well. Now a bit of background as well with Speed Academy, we actually got involved with them during their Mitsubishi Evo build and uh, Dave actually went through our engine building, practical engine building course and put basically that course into use when he built his own 4G63. So real world living proof that our courses can actually be used firsthand like this to build an engine by someone who has never built an engine before. So before we get into our interview, just a quick introduction to HPA. If you aren't aware of who we are, we're an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to build performance engines, how to tune aftermarket and factory engine management systems. We also cover motorsport wiring and we cover race car setup and race driver education. 
Relevant to today's topic, I just mentioned our engine building courses and we have an engine building fundamentals course which will teach you the background theory about engine building, uh, what goes into building a performance engine and then our practical engine building course which builds on that knowledge and then takes you through a step-by-step process that you can apply to building any engine, doesn't matter what it is. We've got a full range of worked examples in that course where you can watch the HPA 10-step process being applied from start to finish. Now if you are interested in either of those courses we'll drop a link into the show notes. You'll also find them at hpacademy.com forward slash courses and you can use the coupon code podcast75. That's going to give you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. All right, with our introduction out of the way, let's jump into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for for joining us. Uh, First opportunity, I think we've had two guests at the same time, but uh, it'd be great to get perspectives from both of you individually. And uh, you're joining us at the moment from from Canada in the middle of winter, I assume. Is that that about right? You got some snow on the ground? It's very, very cold here. (laughs) It is is snowing outside. It's probably minus 20 Celsius. Uh, We see you in your shorts and we're angry about it. Uh, to be fair, I'd look forward to getting back on the snowboard. So bring bring on winter, I say. You can always get warmer in the middle of summer. It, it's it's hard to cool off. All right, let's actually get into our topic, though. And, and you guys are, are obviously fairly well-known across the international car community for your Speed Academy YouTube channel. I'm interested in knowing how you got started. So was this born out of a passion of wrenching on cars and, and how did you sort of build up those skills and, and feel free to, to both give me some answers here guys mm-hmm. take it away Petey well I mean you know I think for the both of us this is certainly a passion that's developed into a career and for me I've just I, I learned working on cars through my father. He was always wrenching on uh, ship boxes and <laughs> I was there passing him tools. And then that turned into, you know, I, I, I hit 16 years old. It was funny. I got into bikes for about two years, I think from like uh, around from 14 to 16. I was like, oh, mountain bikes are the coolest thing ever. And then I got my license and it was like, why am I even on a, a bicycle here when I could be driving a car? And uh, I quickly switched over to that. And, and from there on out, like I just, I've always had a passion for cars. I think it's a, they're, they're super unique. They're um, from a perspective of someone that likes to build and likes to tinker and likes to figure out how things work. They're, I think they're kind of like the perfect recipe for that. And I think that's where the passion originally came from. And obviously, like I said, watching my father work on it. And, and then, uh, yeah, it just, it spiraled on from there. So. And to give you an idea of what a masochist Pete really is, because he keeps picking cars like GTRs and two JM3s to build, it all started with DSMs for him, which is, an, you know, you know a little bit about Andre, and you know that there's a certain amount of masochism in learning to wrench on a DSM as like the basically the first car you were building. But you know why that, that happened? Because it came, I bought a DSM for $900, a, a, a Plymouth Laser, which I'm not sure you guys got, which is like the, the front wheel drive Mitsubishi Eclipse Turbo. I bought for $900, which of course had a broken timing belt, which at the time, you know, like uh, late 90s was what was happening to all these cars because no one was changing timing belts on them and they thought they yep. were, you know, fast. But I, I, I stumbled upon to that car and I, me and my brother were really into 
Hondas. And we found this thing and, you know, me and my dad rebuilt this in our driveway with no garage, like lapping the valves because they were all bent with like the most <laughs> primitive tools. Polishing compounds. What, what you would, you would just imagine two guys working outside with a cylinder head off, like rebuilding it, yeah. put it back together. And this thing was a rocket ship and it just, it's, and, and ironically, <laughs> It was like the DSMs of the time, they were like the, the cheap, the go fast for cheap yeah. cars out there. And, and I was a cheap guy uh, and, and partially still am. And uh, it, uh, it, it was like the perfect car where I up the boost for nothing. I got like an aquarium uh, bleeder valve, put that thing in, got like a crush bent yeah. exhaust system built up at my local muffler shop that now I look at and I think, what was I thinking? And, well and man, yeah. I was destroying cars left, right, and center. I remember my buddy had a Camaro and he was like the coolest guy in school with a, like a 5.7 liter Camaro. And we hit the lights one time and, and I just roasted him and he was so butthurt. He was so, so butthurt. And that's kind of, you know. <laughs> you learned about the power of JDM. Right? I, I did, I did. And, and it, no, you know what? I learned the power of turbo. And I think turbos were, on four cylinders were kind of like the, the DSMs really rolled North America into those yeah. cars like that. I mean, you know, there was the Shelby's prior to I think there's there's a certain amount of satisfaction that comes from yeah that that home built shitbox as you put it yeah nine hundred bucks probably gives you a pretty good indication uh, of what you started with and and there's a satisfaction that comes from turning that into something that actually drives and goes pretty good and I I do think that that sort of era of car and you know maybe not just Mitsubishi but you know here in New Zealand we're obviously spoilt with with all of the JDM goodness and you know you've got your choice of of turbo cars from the late 80s early to mid 90s but the the great thing about that era was that it was very easy to to modify them and see significant improvements in, in performance without having to spend a lot on electronic tuning equipment uh, which these days, you know, modern cars, obviously there's still a lot of power available in the likes of maybe, I don't know, the, the latest R35 GTR, but uh, you know, you're not going to just chuck in a, a bleed valve from an aquarium <laughs> setup and, and up the boost on one of those. It requires a, a, slight, a slightly more finesse. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let, let's move over to... Uh, to Dave, yeah, give us uh, give us your perspective. Dave, how'd you get into this? I mean, my story is fairly similar to Pete's in that uh, I grew up in a, a household with a dad who was a car guy. He was building MGs and Triumphs and uh, stuff like that in the garage when I was really little. And then as I got a little old, older, he got into Corvettes and Camaros. So I was always around that stuff. And then I'd go to autocross events with him when I was a kid. So I was always attracted to cars and I wanted to drive probably from the time I was walking and talking. And then, you know, got my driver's license on my 16th birthday and started autocrossing in my dad's Corvette with him. So I got involved in motorsports at a reasonably young age and um, tinkered on those cars with him a little bit, though he's an engineer and I'm not, as you would have probably recognized if you've ever watched any of our videos. So (laughs) I, I didn't really learn a lot from him about how to build cars. I just shared an interest in them and really a love of driving. Um, and, you know, when there was basic, you know, hand me tool, hand me the tools kit or like, you know, wet sand the car for six hour type of jobs, I would help with that. But I wasn't really doing anything too mechanical at that age. So 
that came later when I got more sure. involved in motorsports, actually, and I realized that I wanted to do more racing. And to do that, you have to become self-sufficient if you're not independently wealthy. And uh, sadly, I had not won the lottery at that point in life yet. So I did learn to do some basic stuff with my buddies in the garage. So I, I, I got a Honda uh, Prelude and started doing some time attack event in that and uh, experienced the wonders of VTech and, you know, became a devout, um, you know, loyalist to the Honda brand at that point in my life. And all my buddies were into Hondas too. So we were all modifying our cars and kind of learning from each other about how to swap a B18 into a, an EF or an EG Civic, that kind of stuff. And uh, so I became yeah. a decent mechanic. I, 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 I wouldn't say I was ever a very good mechanic, but I became good enough to like do a Honda engine swap on my own. And really calling that an engine swap is a bit of a, a, bit of a joke because really it all just bolts in there. <laughs> it's a bigger engine, but it just bolts in there. There's not, no, not a lot of welding needed for that. Yeah, back then it yeah. seemed like it was a, a, a quite an accomplishment, but looking at it now, it's kind of hilarious that we even call those swaps. But that's really how it started for me. And then the motorsports hobby led to some opportunities to write some stories for car magazines, um, both locally and internationally. And then I eventually got offered a job full-time working at a car magazine out of the Toronto area here, which is where I met Peter. He was working there as the technical editor. I got hired as a, as a senior writer, uh, kind of re writing like feature car stories. And Pete was doing the more technical stuff like, mm. you know, um, parts reviews or bolting on parts to project cars. And then his role there evolved, my, my job there evolved too. And we worked there for, what, 11 years? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. So we had a good run in the, the print magazine world where we got to, you know, go to all the cool car shows and build a bunch of project cars and, um, you know, do, do all that car guy stuff. Live through the heyday of, you know, import cartooning. I, I cringe when I say that, but that's, yeah. that's what they called it back yeah. then. To ride that fast and furious wave yeah. there for a minute. So uh, that's how we were making our living while and playing on cars. And I guess you guys, you guys would have also seen the, the, the rise and fall, I guess, of, of print media. And, and I mean, I'm guessing to, to fast forward, am I, am I right in assuming you, you probably saw that the writing was on the wall for print media and you know everyone was moving to to online options instead yeah yeah well ironically um the publisher that owned modified magazine it was in canada and he had sold to a, a large u.s publisher and uh in doing so we already kind of knew it was like uh-oh things are things are starting to change because he was at the forefront he always knew what was going on and, and at that point he was buying up forums that was his next big thing and and forums were were kind of on the up and up then and uh, we kind of knew all right the magazine business is, is starting to slow down and, and we, we certainly saw it but um, we rode that wave right to the end and, and right. you know I, I don't regret it I'm sure if we had started a YouTube channel three four years earlier we'd be way way further ahead mm -hmm. um, but the magazine job was just, it was, it was glorious. Like, was cushy, I, yeah. I think looking back now, you know, it, and probably at the end of my life, I'm going to think that the magazine job was probably the greatest thing that I, I've done as a career and, and, you know, potentially will do so just because it was, it was, there, there was like so much good things happening. Like everything came together. It was the heyday of like, you know, like you said, Hondas and just like turbocharging and all this. And it was, you know, 
everybody, there was so much money in the industry as well. So mm -hmm. we were able to travel, go to events. Like we were going mm -hmm. to Japan, you know, over to Europe. I, I've been, you know, Australia. Yeah, so. it, it was the heyday in some ways. But I mean, on the other hand, you know, we're living in an age of access to information like never before. Like when I think back to when I started working on cars, I had no idea what I was doing. And unless, and unless I could find people who did know what they were doing, there was no way to really learn. And now you can go to YouTube University or you can go to HP Academy and learn things which you, you just never had access to before. So No, 100%. So, and this, this is exactly what, what I, I lived through when I, when I started STM, my, my old business. And, you know, that, that was kind of the heyday of, as you've said, the, the Japanese car, JDM cars and print media. The, the forums were there, but they weren't quite as big as they got to. YouTube wasn't really a, a thing. And, you know, trying to find the information, it just wasn't as easy as it is today. Uh, so I think particularly those enthusiasts growing up in, in the modern era, you're almost spoilt for choice. And, and while obviously, yeah, we, we offer training courses, uh, you know, even aside from those, there's just limitless free information out there. The challenge, of course, with some of the free information is, is sorting that fact from fiction. For and sure, everyone's for got sure. an opinion and sometimes those posting that information maybe aren't the most qualified <laughs> to be giving it. But but I digress away from that. I do reckon, though, just before we move on from print media, I do think that it, it, it's a shame. I I love you know, online information and, and the ability to, to find anything basically at, at the click of your fingers or a mouse. But, you know, I, I've still got a stack of old magazines, which uh, they've got a different kind of uh, appeal, I think. So it's a bit of a shame that that print media did did sort of, well, it's not quite dead, but uh, definitely it's on its uh, last legs, I would imagine. Which obviously brings us to to Speed Academy, your, your YouTube channel. And I mean, while it's a slightly different angle from where we go with these podcast interviews normally, I think it's fair to say there's there's probably a bunch of our our followers or listeners who who are maybe considering like is is YouTube a viable option? Can I become a YouTuber? What's involved? Uh, can I actually make a, a living out of it? So. Could you maybe give us a, a bit of a rundown on, on how you started Speed Academy and how challenging it's been? Yeah, I mean, we started it because the magazine literally closed. So as Pete said, we wrote it out to the, to the bitter end. And when it closed, uh, Pete was in California at the time and I was up here in the Toronto area. And we, we said, you know, what's next? Do we take jobs at other magazines or... Uh, with online, you know, media companies or PR agencies that work in the auto industry, we both had job offers to go places. So we, we had we had options, but uh, we both wanted to kind of keep doing what we were doing, which was building cars and driving cars and having fun with them. So uh, we thought, you know, why not give this a try? We'd seen other online, um, you know, media companies blow up. We could see that there were, you know, YouTubers having success with this content and. To be honest, we didn't really start with YouTube as our focus, though, did we? We started with a, a, a website thinking it would be more magazine-style content on a website, and the video stuff would sort of be supplemental to that. But six months in, I would say, we realized the YouTube side was getting my, many more hits than the blog was. So we really transitioned to that point to being more focused on YouTube and less focused on the website. And that's certainly been more and more the case as time has passed. Now the website's kind of a... 
a relic of sorts. We certainly had a lot to learn about how to run a business because neither of us really had any business experience per se. So, you know, things like accounting and uh, incorporating and then like generating revenue were all new to us. But we initially started with, I think, basically a magazine model where we knew companies from the magazine that we'd worked with. And we said, hey, we're starting this thing up. Do you want to advertise on our website or do you want to send us parts for this build? And so we were able to leverage those relationships from the magazine world to start the business. And that really did allow us to generate some income before we had any audience yet. So we were very lucky that way. Yeah, yeah. I think and so. then, you know, as the as things grew, obviously it got easier and easier to then make a business argument for why companies should support us with with their marketing dollars. Uh, so we were never dependent on YouTube's ad share revenue from the beginning. We always had, you know, partnerships outside of YouTube that allowed the business. Which I think is what made us a little bit unique. Most people going into this situation, you know, I think you just have to be prepared to spend, you know, anywhere from, from one to, you know, four years grinding it out, not seeing any revenue. And I think the automotive realm is one of the hardest things to get into only because it requires so much uh, investment of money into, you know, spaces, cars, tools, all of this stuff, right? Like it's not, we're not a cooking channel here where we can cut up some vegetables and, and go to the grocery store and shoot in our own uh, kitchen. It's it, it certainly, you know, and, and that's not saying you can't start out of your garage. A hundred percent you can. I think the, the, that is the lure of YouTube. YouTube has the, the idea that the cost of entry is essentially a camera and you, and then, you know, you can go out there. Um, so my advice for people that are looking into this is really ask yourself if this is truly something you want to do. If, if you feel very passionate about video production creation, um, more so than, you know, wrenching on cars, because there's so much of that. I think that is also a side piece where someone's like, oh, I love working on cars. Maybe I'll just shoot myself and this will spawn into a YouTube career. And, uh, you know, for us, it, it, we love working on cars, but we're still, it's like any business. We still feel the stress and pressure of all of the other things that come together. Right. Let's, let's just, um, let's just come back a little bit there and, yeah, so you've given some great information so far, which I think is probably pretty valuable to those who, who may be considering this. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of people uh, kind of get the impression that they're going to start a YouTube channel and they're going to be an overnight success and and, and be raking in $10,000 a month. And, and the reality is that to get to those sort of numbers, uh, you're going to need a huge number of followers. And there's only a certain number of NMLZs and Amelia Hartfords out there who really have got those massive audiences. And and like you say, I mean, you need to be uh, bowing down to that YouTube algorithm as well, doing what YouTube want you to do, which is producing a lot of compelling content that's getting a lot of views. So you know, it, it does definitely become... Uh, a a job as well, uh, so you need to focus. Uh, need to 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 weigh that up. Uh, at HPA, we've put a lot of effort into our YouTube channel. Uh, we don't have nearly the the success in terms of followers uh, that that you guys have got. I think uh, last time I checked, you you ticked over about half a million. Uh, and it, it's it's really difficult making great compelling videos we put a huge amount of effort in and we might get a video that that, that maybe gets 20 30 50,000 views which for us is probably pretty good 
And then I, I stumble on my two kids watching an unboxing video that some 16-year-olds filmed in their garage with an iPhone and it's got three and a half million views. Yeah. And I kind of <laughs> shake my head and, and wonder wonder why why I even bothered. Uh, what, what I do want to know, like oh, actually before I, I jump into that, I think what you mentioned there, which is really important to take away, if you're going to go maybe into YouTube and make your living off the ad share, uh, you're not going to get that immediately, which you mentioned. So you're lucky you came into that with sponsorships, which you could monetize. Uh, the the ad revenue probably isn't going to kick in until you've really built up that audience. So depending how quickly that happens, maybe 6, 12, 18 months or, or even more. So that's important. What I want to know is, uh, has, has it now affected your passion for wrenching on cars? Uh, has it become a, a, a job? Or are you? Is it everything you sort of thought it would be when you you got stuck in? I mean, I I, I don't think it's really changed my passion for cars. No, no. I I, I think uh, it's there's there's ups and downs with it. You know, I think if this was a hobby, right now me and Dave would probably be taking a month long vacation <laughs> right. somewhere warm and We'd just be relaxing. going to New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> truthfully, yeah, something like that. And you know, then then coming back and, and working on your car, where you know we just have a schedule we have to keep. So there's days that you don't really want to wrench or, you know, other things come up, but you, you still kind of need to, to do it. But um, my passion is still there. And, you know, I, I don't look at it from a different perspective. Like if I was doing this in my home garage, I think I would be doing much of the same per se um, on, on maybe less of a, a, a scale of a budget that we have, right? I think that's the, the big difference is when you run a business like this, <laughs> there's a yeah. lot of justifications you can yeah. make and you yeah. can, you know, say, well, I'm buying this part, I'm writing it off or, you know, we're, we're doing this and it's part of the business. Mm -hmm. So we go that way. We're at home. You know, I, I get it. People are on much more of a budget, right? Yeah. And just the sheer number of builds that we have to do uh, from a business perspective can, can turn into a bit of a grind. And there's times where, you know, we're not super pumped about a particular job that we're doing, but overall, I still love what we do. And you know, this was always something we chose to do because we loved to do it. And we had that magazine experience. So we knew that we could work in something that was a hobby as a career and still enjoy it and have it not burst that bubble for us. So we, we, we came in with that mindset already knowing that this was a business and that, but we could still, you know, fulfill our automotive uh, passions through it. So I will say that there are times where we would want to do more on a project where we'd want to go like deeper on it, maybe, you know, sort the suspension out more or sort the, you know, the tune out a little better. And because we're under the pressure to get builds done quickly, sometimes we don't get to do that. So like, that's my one pet peeve with where we're at right now is that we don't get to spend the time really fine tuning things as much as I'd like, because that doesn't make for good content, or at least it doesn't make for good content on our channel. People don't want to watch, don't want to watch that on our channel. So we've, we've had to sort of trim the fat on some of that. Yeah. Overall, I think we're still really yep. happy that we're able to make a living doing what we do. So okay. we're not going to complain, Andre. That's not very Canadian of us to complain. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is a great time to be alive if you want to go down this path because you can make your passion into a career, which which is perfect. I mean, yeah. the old saying: if you uh, do what you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I mean, I've really embraced that over over my career. And I mean, yes, there there are there are days where I'm doing things that maybe I'm I'm not a hundred percent in love with, but I think uh, you know ninety five, ninety eight percent of the time. 
uh, I get out of bed and go to work with a smile on my face and I really do genuinely love what I'm doing. So I am very grateful for that. One of the things perhaps I'm not so grateful for, which I'm interested to get your perspective on, is the comments section. And <laughs> I think this is something that's that's really spawned out of social media and you know, everyone obviously has an opinion. And these days everyone's really willing to share that opinion, whatever it may be. And I think, you know, that's great. Obviously that that's that's the right that social media gives you. I personally am pretty careful with how I work online in terms of if I'm commenting on something, I tend to try and treat the comment that I make the same as how I deal with someone in real life. And that's, I think, pretty, pretty, pretty good way to, to get by. But uh, unfortunately, I seem to be in the minority. So long story short there, how thick a skin do you have to grow to, to work and put everything out there on the internet? Does it keep you up at night? Do you, do you cry yourself to sleep with some of the comments or does it just not bug you? I think it's, it's one of the most difficult things to deal with again, in an automotive space, because, you know, we're working on vehicles, we're not experts on every car we work on, we don't, you know, build a Honda Civic every time, usually the projects we start, we want to start new sure. ones, fresh ones. So we're learning as we go. And you have a comment section that continues to tell you, you've done this wrong, you've done this wrong, you know, oh, you should have done it this way. And, and that just creates doubt all the time, right? And uh, th that's, partially why we've torn apart a, an RB26 three times, you know, because you put it back together. Someone says, oh, you should have done this. Okay. So we take it apart. We put it back together and someone says, oh my goodness, this needed to be done. You didn't do this. Your engine will explode. Trust me, I'm an internet expert. And, you know, and here's the thing you don't know, like you don't know if it's a 15 year old making that comment that just read a bunch of forums or it's Andre sitting there that's, you know, actually has a lot of knowledge. And, and I think that's where, the, the biggest problem is and it's it certainly keeps it doesn't keep me up at night it certainly creates situations that I don't really like where again it's just creating doubt um, there's also comments that people just you know go off and I have no <laughs> I kind of let loose sometimes and just you know tell people like what you're saying is completely wrong like or say hey give me the data right like I just recently I'll give a really quick example someone said Stock turbos, R34 turbos on a GTR uh, can make 500 wheel horsepower. And I said, I, I, that's incorrect. He mm, kind of said, why did you guys pull that engine? You guys shouldn't have left it. You could make your power goals on it. And I said, no. And I said, please provide me with some data. And the person just kept going back and forth, you know, attacking in every other way. No one ever wants to admit they're wrong, right? And it's just a circle of a, uh, of a, yeah. a, a toilet spinning downwards <laughs> until you get to rock bottom. The comment section is a toilet. Let's just, let's just it end is. it there. I, no, no. You know what? I, I, I think when we first started, the comment section used to get under my skin a little, little bit if people were saying just, you know, asinine things. But I, I, it doesn't bother me at all anymore. I don't lose a wink of sleep over it, partly because I don't worry about the technical stuff the way Peter does, because really Peter takes the lead on most of the technical things around here. So he worries a lot more about that stuff than I do. But I also tend not to give people as much credit as Peter does. So uh, if, if I have questions, I'll usually <laughs> seek out an actual expert, not in the comments section, but in real life, say by reaching out to someone like you on 
Instagram or Messenger or email or, or you know, we have relationships in the industry. We've been around a long time. We've, yep. earned, we've earned these gray hairs. So we, we reach out to people who we actually trust and know that motor well. I, th- I think it's, it's actually worth mentioning there that no one in this industry knows everything. And you know, you've, you've said yourselves there, you, you're not experts on every car that you're dealing with. That, that just goes with the territory. I mean, no one pulls apart an RB26 for the very first time and, and knows intimately all the little tricks and, and traps that, that that particular engine uh, actually has. And the RB26 has more than its fair share, unfortunately. Uh, you know, and as you say, I mean, I've, I've had uh, messages from you a couple of times, particularly with that RB26. Hey, uh, someone said this, what do you think? And, and I'm able to draw from my experience because I have built those engines before I've dealt with them, I've tuned them. They're pretty common here in New Zealand. Likewise, though, I don't know everything. And when I'm dealing with an engine that I'm not particularly familiar with, I've, I'm fortunate enough that I've got my own network of people that I can reach out to. And the likes of Tony Palo, I've hit him up with a bunch of questions about R35 GTRs because I don't deal with the number of them that he uses. So I think he does, I should say. So I think it's really important to have a uh, you know, break down the 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 sort of mentality that you know we know everything, we're experts, and we cannot reach out for help because that, that's just simply foolish. And you know, we're going to advance a lot faster if we ask for help from people who actually genuinely uh, do know more than us on on a particular a particular job. For sure, for sure. Now you've, you've talked about the RB twenty six and. You guys are pretty lucky that currently uh, you're working on two of my favourite cars. You've got a Supra and an R34 GTR. And uh, particularly the GTRs in the US, uh, the R32, 3 and 4, don't appear to be as common as, as we see them here in New Zealand. How did that come to be that uh, you stumbled upon those two cars? We, you know, we had this idea of shooting a video series on... JDM legends, some of the you mm-hmm. know greatest cars to come out of Japan, and uh, we had the hopes of you know really setting the views on fire. Like what <laughs> car would would get a lot of views? Uh, and we thought the R34 GTR would be exactly that. The really awesome thing about Canada is we have a 15 year import law versus you know, the U S which is 25. So we're able to bring in cars that are 15 years old, um, which gives us early access to a lot of newer vehicles like the R34 GTR. And, uh, two years ago, we set out on the quest through our importer, Craig at Bonsai rides to find us, uh, an R34. And we, you know, we weren't expecting to get what we got for the, the money. Um, Originally, you know, it was like a seventy-five to ninety-five thousand dollar car, and we stumbled upon this one for uh, fifty-five thousand dollars, <laughs> which was incredible. And that's insanely cheap. It, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a Monday night at the auctions or whatever. So, uh, what one of the things you've just you've just touched on there is, is we've obviously seen with some of these select cars, and it does actually appear to be most of the popular JDM models. Is the prices are just going absolutely insane? I think there was an R thirty four V spec two sold in the US for for north of three hundred thousand US dollars, which just to me is is just out of control. Now, one of the issues that comes with that, though, is if you're purchasing one of these collector's items, I'll call them, or JDM Legends vehicles, 
does, does that kind of affect your thought process on, on what modifications, if any, you can do? Do you just have to sort of store the thing away in cotton wool, never drive it, and, and then hope five years down the track you can double or triple your money? Or is it just another car? Too? Yeah, well, that's exactly what happened with the R34. You know, we, we bought it at, you know, like we imported everything, landed, I think it was like 70000 or 65000 And, you know, that's a considerable amount of money. But at the time, I still felt, sure, you can modify the car, play with it. It's, it's, it's not a $200,000 car. And then the market exploded. And all of a sudden, we kind of had to rejig the game plan. I, I'm not rolling fenders. I don't want to put a big intercooler up front where I need to cut the crash bar. So everything was a bolt on modification. I, I went as far as buying another engine so that I wouldn't potentially blow up the original engine out of this car. This car came all stock. So we're, you know, I have the ability in the future, if these are million dollar cars to fully restore it back to original state and put it back to stock with all of the original parts that we have. Right. So it, it's yeah. changed the game for us completely because we're now looking at it like you know we are like most people we i i don't find joy driving a two hundred fifty thousand dollar car because i feel like i can't beat on it like you said and now it's more of like an investment piece and um with that lying in the back of our heads we're kind of rejigging and thinking what kind of cars do we start building where the audience also can relate and say look this is a a cheaper car a car that i can go thrash on i can drive every day i don't have to worry if i get a scratch on right yeah, we've gotten some negative feedback about these cars precisely because they've become so valuable. Viewers are like, uh, you know, when are you going to move on to like building some cheap Hondas because I can't afford these cars and so I don't really care about them. I can't relate to them. So even though they have this like legendary status and, you know, they're Gran Turismo dream cars for kids who grew up yeah. playing those video games, they become so unattainable that I think people are kind of angry about it. And, you know, enthusiasts feel like they're being priced out of the market by investors and by people who are speculating on these cars at, as investments as opposed to buying them out of, you know, passion for what they really are. So there's been some pushback about it. Yeah, I, and I guess that's the, the, the usual story. You, you can't keep everyone happy. And, I mean, at the outset, obviously, uh, you weren't expecting the prices to, to do what they've done. I, I get both sides of things. We've covered cars that are in the three, four $400,000 and more price tag vicinity and I generally find that most enthusiasts can appreciate them for what they are even if they know that they're probably never going to have one parked in, in their own garage uh, but at the same time yeah you, you also have to to focus on things that are uh, more attainable and more affordable so they're relatable to to the main market so it's just a case of getting getting that nice spread uh, across everything. Mm-hmm. Now Moving on a little bit, one of the things you guys are known for is is engine swaps, and and I've done my share of them over the years. I don't think I was ever very good at them. I always found that they were fiddly and time consuming. Uh, but there's a certain satisfaction in completing one and and having something unique that does really give you the opportunity to set yourself apart from from others with the same model. So. Can you talk to me about why you'd decide to engine swap a particular car in the first instance? Let's start with uh, BMWs. We all know why we swap <laughs> engines out of BMWs and put reliable ones in it, right? Do I need to go there? Put an engine in with correctly sized bearings. That's where you want to start. That's right. 
<laughs> I fear you're going to be getting offside here with some uh, Euro purists, but uh, let's, let's yeah, uh, carry on. Yeah, like, I think it, it just comes down to what what works and what's what's feasible for us for what we need, right? We like to push our cars. We like the idea of building cars that are reliable. And because we're on a schedule, we don't want stuff constantly setting us back with blown engines or, you know, breakdowns and all that jazz. So with a BMW, we, you know, we swapped a 2J into an E46 M3. And that has always kind of been a dream of mine because I love the E46 chassis. Um, I think mm. it's, it's a, an extremely well-balanced car. It, the styling of it is so nice. But the engine, even though it's great, it's one of, the, I think, the, the greatest naturally aspirated engines. It just comes with its territory of like headaches and constant maintenance. And after putting a 2JZ into it, it's been the greatest thing. It makes double the power. It actually runs smoother. I don't have to worry driving home that something's going to break. And I think that that's, that, you know, was, was the trueness of, of what a, an engine swap for me is in that sense. But yeah. there's also like we did a K swap, a, a K24 swap into a Nissan 240SX right and that was more yeah. more for like the track yeah yeah it, yep. it's a it's a great setup in that chassis because sr20s i mean no offense andre but only a lunatic would choose an sr20 as you know the engine in a race car as you've learned multiple times now so the internet has told me in the comments section multiple times that uh i should have case swapped it yeah and, yeah. and you know what i i actually don't even argue that point um, well, it, we did, we, we did a, what you should have done. We K-swapped <laughs> an S14 rather than an FRS chassis. But, and, uh, you know, that came with its own challenges and its, and its own issues. It's not the most uh, smooth engine. It puts a lot of NVH into the chassis. So it was rattling things loose like alternators and belts. And so, you know, it wasn't, yeah, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't without its, its uh, compromises. But yeah. as you know, I mean, a k a K is the way most of the time. So if you want to make your, your car more reliable. Well, especially and, in, in this market right now, tell, name an engine that you can buy for $1,000 that you know has the potential NA to make 300 at the wheel or 500 uh, oh, at, yeah. with a turbo, right? On stock and turbo. It, is, it is hard to argue with a K series. They are, you know, in my opinion, one of the, the best four-cylinder engines to come out of Japan. And um, yeah, you, you just can't argue with the power they can make with the reliability. Back back when I was running my old shop, we'd, we'd often have a scenario where we'd have a, a, a young guy or girl come in with a car, didn't really matter what it was. And let's say that car's got uh, an SR20 DET and it makes 300 horsepower and, and they want to make 600 horsepower. So obviously there's two ways to skin that particular cat. We can we can modify the SR20 DET and, and there's there's no question asked we could definitely make 600 horsepower out of an SR20 DET with with relative reliability I'd like to think. On the other hand, uh, we could simply choose an engine that off the showroom floor produced 600 horsepower. Uh, you know, the, there's a variety of options there. Let's just say for example there uh, the 2JZ, because you've put that into your E46 M3. Obviously, a 2JZ in stock form is not quite there, but I mean, it, it's it's well proven that uh, with no internal modification, 600 horsepower from the 2JZ, absolutely achievable. So when you're weighing up those options, what sways you towards the engine swap route? I mean, I think for for us, sometimes it's just the the idea of taking a chassis we love and making it more what we want it to be. Uh, with engines yep. that we love. With engines that we love and that we know 
that we have an understanding of. We know how to work with them. We know what kind of power we can get from them. Uh, and sometimes it's just the technical challenge of doing something that hasn't been done before. Like when we K-swapped the S14, it really hadn't been done, at least by anyone locally that we knew. So it was, it was just, we felt like the right engine in the right chassis and it would be a fun challenge to try to do it. But we also knew it wasn't, it wouldn't be that difficult because the Ks are relatively simple. It's an older chassis. You know, there's no like CAN bus integration that you need to do like we did on the two JM3, which was a bigger challenge. So sometimes it's just, you know, pick an engine that you're passionate about, put it in a chassis you're passionate about, and it yep. should work out nicely in the end. And like with my 77 Toyota Celica, I don't want to drive around with carburetors puking fuel on me and, and needing to be, you know, tweaked all the time. I'm not interested in that. I wanted to modernize an old car by putting a, a, a newer engine in it with, you know, modern power levels in it, but not so powerful that it, it makes the car seem imbalanced. So I put a Beam 3 SGE sure. in that chassis because it felt like the right amount of power. It was still four cylinders. It was still about the same displacement as the engine was originally in that chassis. And it was also an engine swap that had some support from the aftermarket. So I didn't have to like fabricate engine mounts. I didn't have to, you know, fabricate a lot of it. A lot of it was available from the aftermarket. So it made it a, a pretty easy choice. And sometimes you do choose an engine swap because it has support in the aftermarket and it makes it much more doable, attainable. Oh, definitely. We're, we're, we're looking at, at going down that path with uh, our Nissan 350Z, which has kind of been retired now that we're racing the GT86, and uh, that's going to sit there forlornly. That actually had the SR20 VE turbo engine sitting in it. Long story short, that's why uh, we chose to put that engine into the 86 when oh, we couldn't get our V8 built in time. Uh, but... You know, that's sitting there at the moment with no engine in it. So we've got a, a built LS sitting in the shop and you know, from a handful of different suppliers now, you can buy a full uh, CNC machined engine mount and transmission mount kit to basically make that engine and a T56 trans uh, a bolt into the to the 350Z chassis, which obviously is, is nice and easy. I mean, to me, it kind of almost takes some of the the challenge and fun out of an engine swap but um, if you want to do it quickly and, and keep your hands clean it, it's definitely uh, a, a viable way of going forward. Now within reason if the budget's there and the time's there and you've got the patience you could literally swap just about anything into any chassis but uh, some are obviously easier than others. With your own experience uh, could you give us maybe some of the common pitfalls or traps that you see people fall into when they're considering an engine swap? I think electronics is the biggest one, right? Mm. Uh, you know, swapping engines in physically, I think, is the, the easy thing. Electronics is is certainly, it, and even more so yep. these days with newer engines, they're just becoming more and more complicated. The, the ideas of CAN bus and all that are, you know, a myth to a lot of people, myself included. And I, I think that's always the one thing that people miss in the beginning, but there's just so much resources these days, so many people swapping different things, so many, so many people creating um, kits that I think a lot of that has been alleviated for the most part. But I think that's always a, a, an issue. And 
oil pan placement yeah, where we've one. run into many, many challenges. You know, for example, with the K-series in the S14, two, in yeah. the S14, we had to like build a custom oil pan and, and there's just so many of these headaches that come up with that kind of stuff that few people really realize until they start. And if it's been done before, great, pans are out there. If it hasn't, you get there and now, you know, we, all, we almost went down the dry sump route, which increases your cost, you know, so much, mm -hmm. but sometimes yep. that's the way to go because you do, just don't have the clearance, right? Mm -hmm. In that S14 installation, was the issue there with the, the pan placement, was that uh, clearance to the subframe or, I mean, the K-series is a relatively tall engine as well in some engine exactly. bays, was that the problem? Yeah, yeah. It, it was exactly where we had to, we had, we, we actually modified the, the subframe and modified the pan and had a custom pan built to make it all work. Originally, we started with uh, a, a stock front wheel drive oil pan and had baffles and, and a whole, you know, thing built out up front, like more capacity. Um, but yep. it wasn't working very well at the racetrack. So we went back and had a completely custom pan built. But now there's, you know, Toge Factory, for example, uh, makes a full bolt-in kit and you can buy an oil pan. So you don't even have to worry about that, right? Mm -hmm. All right. You mentioned the electronic side of things and I want to dive into that a little bit because I agree wholeheartedly that that is, is probably the biggest challenge, particularly as cars get more complex. You're going to have multiple uh, controllers through the car. So you'll have uh, an engine ECU, transmission controller, ABS, traction control, even for your air conditioning and your gauge cluster. And, and the part that's really easy to overlook is all of those different modules talk together over a two-wire bus called a CAN bus. So the problem when you remove the factory engine and factory engine controller, we can fit a different engine, put in an aftermarket ECU or whatever ECU ran that engine in the factory car, probably get the engine up and running. But the issue then is that the CAN bus communication is now interrupted. So the gauge cluster isn't getting the messages that it was expecting. So we've got no RPM, probably no speed. Uh, if you're dealing with the automatic transmission, chances are it's not going to change gear. So th those are where those challenges really lie. Obviously, if you're building an all-out race car, that's easy. Remove all of those modules, start from scratch, put in an aftermarket dash, and, and, and happy days, we're up and running. Uh, what what are the options? You sort of, uh, Pete, you just you kind of alluded to um, some options in the aftermarket for popular chassis. What what are those for for doing these engine swaps? How does that work? <laughs> we're we're by no means experts, I think, in, in that area either. What we usually do is rely on people that we know have done uh, a lot of wiring work and and you know integration. So we reach out to those people locally. We have Enviato uh, Nam who th who's there. He's a great wiring help. He helped us wire up the the, the K Swap 240. And with for example the 2JZ M3, we we reached out to Mark Panic who built us a, a custom. Uh, loom and then ended up doing all the CAN bus integration for us. Yeah, he basically went through the manual and built out a custom solution to make CAN bus talk to that motor. And it, he said he had, you know, some astronomical number of hours that he put into it because he'd never done it before, but he wanted to, to do it as a, a learning experience. I don't know that he would ever do it again, but uh, he did make it work, which was remarkable. It really made that, that swap much more complete because now you've got an M3 with the factory dash working pr properly and yep. really, you know, like you said, you can always throw an aftermarket race dash in there and, and drive it around like it's a race car, but Pete really wanted it to be a street car and for that to happen, you needed to integrate that. But there are companies that make 
CAN bus integration modules. Like I know Wiring Specialties makes one for the GT86 or the 86 chassis for a variety of engine swaps. So there are, there are solutions more and more where modules are being built that allow you to, you know, make that, that, that match between the, the, the CAN bus on the chassis side and the engine. Probably worth mentioning there as well, just obviously we've got a fair bit of experience with the, the GT86 chassis and that, that's a classic example. You've got the engine control module, you've got uh, gauge cluster, you've got an ABS control module, electric power steer and again all of those are, are relying on, on CAN bus messaging. Uh, just one solution, it just happens to be the one that we've used is Motec who, who make a, a programmable replacement aftermarket ECU even for the stock car. They went through the, the work of decoding that CAN bus and all of the messages. So once they knew what that was, uh, you can now buy from them their ECU with what they call a 8.6 engine swap package. And that's just the firmware that runs in the ECU. Basically, in a nutshell, it allows you to wire that up to any engine you could dream up and it will still provide the correct CAN messages to the rest of the car. So the ABS still works, the power steer still works. And I mean, for our application, that's been really seamless. But obviously that, that solution isn't available for, for every particular car. I think car. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of companies coming out right now that you know, are becoming experts. So if, for example, you want to put a Honda engine into your GT86, K-Swap Industries has now a turnkey solution for you, right? If you want to put an LS into your 350Z or your FRS, uh, Siki Manufacturing is coming out. So it's, yeah. it's a matter of like, if you, whatever chassis you're starting with and you want to do an engine swap, go out, search, figure out who is doing those swaps and you know that will make your life so, so much easier. If you're trying to trailblaze, I find a lot of people with the advent of digital dashes, that's what your go-to is, right? Oh, well, you know, I, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to spend the time to, to, to decode this stuff. Let's just wire it up and, and get the can going with, uh, with a dash and, and everything is good, right? Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that solution. It's just understanding what those hurdles are going to be. I think yes. the problem is when people get into a project without an expectation of where they're going to get tripped up down the line and particularly if you're working on a tight budget and all of a sudden you realise that you're either going to have to pay someone thousands of dollars for some custom CAN uh, programming or alternatively fit a, a race dash at maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks or more, uh, that, that becomes a bit of a problem. So just having a full understanding of, of what you're getting yourself in for. Yeah, you mentioned about the, the engine mounts and I kind of already touched on that. I think we've seen that area explode as well over the last maybe decade or, or thereabouts and I think a lot of that has come down to uh, the more easy availability of 3D modelling software from the likes of SolidWorks, Fusion 360 and people, enthusiasts actually getting familiar with those tools and how to how to get the most out of them plus uh, CNC machining, uh, probably the, the cost involved in getting engine mounts etc machined has, has probably come down a lot as well so definitely it, it's, it's a viable way of, of performing an engine swap without having to sort of hang off the, the welder and the angle grinder uh, too heavily. One of the other areas that I just wanted to, to see what your sort of thoughts were, uh, in terms of engine swaps where we may be swapping in a different engine behind a factory automatic transmission and trying to keep the, the auto trans happy and shifting. Have you had any experience with the, those sorts of things with in terms of the the wiring requirements or, or what tricks you can play to keep everything working nicely together? 
We haven't, and no, we <laughs> mainly haven't. because I, no. I just don't think there's a lot of options. Like, for example, we wanted to put a standalone ECU onto our automatic uh, JZ80 Supra, and that alone proved challenging. There was only a, f- a few uh, standalones out there that provided communication with the automatic, and we're talking about a car that's you know 25, 30 years old now, and with newer stuff, it's just it's been one of those things we've kind of just put hands up and said we're not we're not going down that road. That being said, uh, I am a huge fan of of the emerging technology with the DCT gearboxes that are now being mated yep. to JZ's Honda platforms. Um, I think that is going to be a next wave. Uh, those and those gearboxes aren't extremely expensive. People have already done the legwork of, you know, doing all of the wiring into the modules on yeah. those gearboxes, getting the CAN communication down. I think that is certainly something. But automatics, and, and really, there, I don't think there's a huge market here specifically, too, for people swapping. Everybody wants to go to that manual route, right? Which is why we yeah, haven't really fair. gone there. Yeah. Other than maybe drag racers. But yeah, yeah it, it, it's a challenge. There's, I'm sure you know more yeah. about this than we do, Andre. Have you done a DCT swap yet, or have you looked into it? I have not done one. I, it's interesting you raised that, because I, I did. I looked into it. Uh, it was a few years back, and, and we're at a situation with our, our turbocharged FA20-powered 8.6, where we could make enough power to pretty easily destroy fourth gear any time we're at the track. And the way I've been getting around that is uh, I just turn the boost right down in fourth gear. It runs 12 to 14 PSI in the other gears. Uh, and when I get into fourth, it pulls it down to, I think, six or seven. So it's the weirdest car to drive. You get into fourth gear and it feels like someone pulled a, an ignition coil off. So you sort of get it into fourth for as, as short a time as possible, short shift it into fifth, and, and boom, you're away again. And that kind of holds the gearbox together. So... I, you know, long story short here, we were looking at options. Uh, most people with the 8.6 chassis tend to chuck the FA20 in the bin uh, if they're trying to make a lot of power. And hence, there weren't really a lot of bolt-on options for transmission upgrades. So uh, we, we did look at the 7-speed BMW DCT out of the M3, I think it was, the V8 M3. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, back when I looked at this, and it was a few years ago now, you could get a really low-K uh, DCT transmission for, I think, in the region of two to 3000 US dollars. Yeah. That is a huge amount of transmission for the money. And what kind of sparked my interest in that was at the time there was a company, I think it's in the US, and I do forget their name, so I apologise, but they had worked with Cyvex to do a DCT transmission into the uh, Supra, the uh, JZA80 Supra. And uh, they had some video of that on the dyno and, and driving around. I thought to myself, this is this is a perfect solution. Um, and at the time, we're, we're running the Motec M1 platform, which which we have a development license for. So I did have the ability to, to do it, I think. <laughs> I'm not a coder. So what scared me was, one, I didn't really know what I didn't know. I didn't know what I was getting into and, and how involved the job was going to be. It would have required a complete rewrite with how the M1 ECU also controlled uh, the engine because with those DCTs, we've sort of got two-way torque requests. So when we ask for a, a gear shift up, uh, the TCM will send a, a torque request to the engine control module asking for the torque to be reduced to allow the shift to take place. So there's a lot of 
uh, to and fro, and this is just a very high level, my understanding of it. In the end, with everything we're doing with HPA, I, I just decided I didn't have the time to, to commit to the project with, without a sort of a guaranteed result. But uh, that was a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago now, and we're seeing more and more companies offer these DCT upgrades. And for me, particularly for an older car, uh, getting it modernised, it's just such a great solution. For a race application, the DCT box does come with a significant weight disadvantage, so that's something that does need to be weighed up. But uh, yeah, a hell of a lot of gearbox for the for the sort of money. We're seeing more and more time attack teams over here going to DCTs, and it's certainly not been easy for them. Uh, there's a couple of teams I can think of that have gone through at least a season of toothing, toothing pains with it, but I think it's Max ECU out of Poland that seem to have a really good solution now that a lot of tuners are going to. Are you familiar yeah, with yeah, that? that's what I understand too. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's something we're looking into. Pete's thinking about maybe putting one in the 2JM3 because doesn't love the current gearbox in there. We used a... Sure. Uh, uh, a SMG gearbox that we didn't put the manual detents into thinking that the sort of like spring loaded shifter that we used would, would make up for it. But which is great for race application, but on the street, you know, this is another great lesson. Uh, if you're building a streetcar, try to think about putting everything in that is street spec versus going with race car parts because, uh, things get chattery very quickly. They get noisy <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's one of those things or we're just, we're also, our, our tastes are changing, right? As, as you age, I think you kind of start realizing like, oh, driving around with a car with no uh, ground clearance and tons of camber and solid engine mounts isn't the greatest thing. I want something <laughs> that I can actually enjoy a little bit more than what it looks like. Right? Not every car you own has to be a race car. That's yeah. true. It used to be yeah. everything uh, was I a race car. Yeah, I, cu- I couldn't agree more. I've, I've seen exactly the same over the 20 plus years I've been in the industry. My tastes obviously have matured. It's a kind of a natural thing. Back when I first started, I, I wouldn't be seen dead driving an auto. Uh, I actually quite enjoy driving our Commodore around as a, as a daily driver. It's it's just easy and, and right? kind of lazy and, and does the job. Um, but I, I think more importantly, what I want to come back to on that, on that note and I see so many people make this mistake because they don't have a good comprehension of, of what the end result is going to be. Is basically we get a, a guy or a girl wants to modify their car and they they fit the solid engine mounts and they fit the uh, the solid centre paddle clutch or twin plate clutch or triple plate clutch and then they fit the solid diff mounts and they lower the thing to within an inch of its life and they're still daily driving this car. And particularly if you ever have to drive that damn thing in traffic, start-stop traffic, you are going to hate your life. So I think it's really important to, to actually sit back before you spend your hard-earned money and start making modifications to a car to actually have a really honest uh, think about how you're going to use the car and, and what you want out of it in terms of uh, enjoyment, I think. Yeah. You, you know, what do you guys think about that sort of angle? No, you're absolutely right. I think you do have to be honest with yourself about what you're going to use the car with. Like everybody wants to build race cars, but everybody wants to build a, 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 a street car that looks, looks like, like a, a race, race car. car. That's right. And they'll only ever take it to the track once or twice a year. And the rest of the time they're commuting in this thing and, and their kidneys are bleeding and their fillings are falling out of their teeth and they're hating life. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a lesson a lot of us learn the hard way, but 
once you've done it enough times, you do realize that maybe you shouldn't be daily driving your race car. And there's, there's ways around it that require a little bit of common sense and sometimes requires a bit of budget. Like if you can afford to have a race car and a daily driver, well, then you're laughing, right? You can, you can, you can have your cake and eat it too. But for those of us who need to have one car, you definitely want to be smart about what modifications you do. And usually that just involves like the basic stuff, put better tires on it, put better brake pads on it, you know, maybe lower it, but don't add a ton of spring rate, you know, uh, don't put a giant fart can on the back. They're going to damage your ears. <laughs> You know, ha- have a bit of restraint, basically. But there's a rite of passage because we've there gone is. down that road. So we know, we've experienced that. We've had our ears bleed. We've, we've yeah. felt our fillings, oh, God, yeah. you know, kind of crack. And yeah. a lot of people, when you're young, you don't know. You yeah. just want it to no. look like what you want, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that trumps everything and you go down that road. And, and I think that's, that's as I said, a, a rite of passage it that is. you can take. It, it, is, it does get expensive. You, you know, for me, if you, like you watch our channel, we're always kind of now presenting this OEM plus idea of like, take your vehicle, OEM did well, now just like mm. make it a little bit better so you can enjoy it. And you know, so it's a little bit faster, it corners better, it, it handles better, right? Or it breaks better kind of thing. Yeah. I, I think that's really smart. I, can, I, I believe that's probably where I'm, I'm at at the moment with what I enjoy driving. I, I am fortunate enough that we have a dedicated race car. So, you know, we modify that in a different way and I can kind of head out to the track and, and basically blow some steam off there and, and still have an enjoyable uh, daily driver, which, which isn't sort of modified too crazy. I think the other problem that that has fueled this to a degree is with online magazines, forums, etc. Basically everywhere we look, everyone has a, a thousand horsepower uh, out of their car. So yes, yeah. <laughs> when, it, when it comes to enthusiasts getting into it, obviously you, you look at what everyone else is doing, well obviously I need a thousand horsepower to be happy. Uh, and what what was really easy to miss by reading an article on on someone else's thousand horsepower modified car is you, you don't get a sense of the what it's like to live with that car, what it costs to to, to make it. And I would say, particularly if we're talking smaller capacity engines, uh, on the street, probably a well modified five hundred or four hundred horsepower turbocharged four cylinder engine would probably blow the doors off a thousand horsepower four cylinder engine nine times out of ten. It's only really when you get onto the drag strip or, or the racetrack where you can actually really uh, let that engine you know, eat and, and it's going to come into its own. So those are the things that I think unfortunately sometimes uh, need to be learned from hard-earned experience. But uh, maybe if you're listening to this podcast and, and you're, you're thinking about going down the, that path, maybe try and learn from, from our experience. It'll save you a bit of money. Nobody needs a thousand horsepower. That's the moral of the story. Who are these lunatics? <laughs> well, but but it is you know YouTube is is part of the problem too because everybody out there is still you know oh I've how do you scream louder than the guy next to you? Well, you say you've straight piped your car, you've made a thousand horsepower. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it is a game of one-upmanship, sure. and I think that is also you know driving a generation of kids growing up with you know crackle tunes and 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 fart yeah. and pop noises coming out of their their exhaust systems that you know I find obnoxious and and completely not necessary but there's so many people watching youtube and see that kind of stuff and, and think like oh that's the cool thing i'm going to do it right let's be honest 50 percent of your tuning money comes from verbal tunes isn't that right andre <laughs> 
I have never ever provided that, but I think it's also a, a, a modern development. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, a, a colleague of mine who actually used to work for me uh, occasionally flicks me through a, a screenshot of an email from a customer, and they're becoming more regular. I think I'm getting probably a screenshot a month now, if not more regularly than that, uh, asking if he can provide a pop and crackle tune. Uh, sometimes they even get as in depth as uh, defining the sort of sound they want, whether that's uh, an AK uh, rifle sound or you know, I, I don't know. But I, I kind of sit back and shake my head. But I also need to to temper that with the perspective of uh, if I was back twenty plus years ago, exactly, I'd probably be emailing my tuner asking for exactly that. Yeah. So yeah, you you can't knock it again. It comes down to that that progression. I just want to talk about power again because. Uh, you mentioned who needs a thousand horsepower, and, and this is a trap that I fell into back uh, back when I was drag racing. And uh, basically, I was as an engine builder, and I was an engine tuner. And for me at the time, uh, drag racing was the best way of proving myself on both of those fronts. And that was my Evo 3 drag car, which at the time, just to toot my own horn, uh, when we retired, it held the world record for the fastest Mitsubishi Evo four-wheel drive, 8 to 180 mile an hour. Anyway, the whole time I was developing that car, I had one priority in mind. Let's make as much damn power as we can. And we went bigger and bigger on the turbo, and we did make a lot of power. At the time it was retired, it was, it was making 1166 wheel horsepower, running 54 PSI of boost. That's definitely nothing on today's terms. There's, there's these 4G63s running 1400 plus wheel horsepower. But back then, uh, we, we were doing okay. What it did was it broke a lot of parts. Uh, I was pulling the transmission out just about every drag meeting. Uh, We'd burn through a triple plate clutch in about 10 passes. And trying to get that thing off the line, it was like walking a knife edge. It would either light up and wheel spin or it would bog. And when it bogged, it generally broke things. So why I say that is uh, while we were still racing that car towards the end, we, we were lucky enough to build an Evo 9 for a customer and he wanted to beat the Evo 9 world record, which at the time was an 834 held by AMS Performance in the US. And with that, we went a slightly different path. We were limited on our tyre size for the class we were going to run. So I knew we couldn't just put any amount of power to to the ground. Uh, we built that with a wider power band and, and we, we limited it to 1,000 wheel horsepower. 1,001 actually, just to be real specific. But what it did was it, it kind of, all of the issues with, with consistently breaking parts and being able to get the car off the line just went away. And what it allowed us to do was actually focus on getting the car down the track, learning how to set the car up, learning how to get it to 60 foot. And, and for those who are into drag racing, just to give some numbers, my old Evo, the best 60 foot it ever laid down was in the 1.3s, which is garbage. Uh, on its best pass, it's 8.2.3. I think it was in the 1.4s. Absolute garbage oh, yeah. and the Evo 9 that we built while it's still nothing to be you know sort of writing home about it was every pass on a good good track was one two six zero sixty 60 foot it was within uh, a few hundredths every pass and that allowed the, the owner and driver to get seat time and allowed us to actually tune the car so you know sometimes it, it sounds a little counterintuitive but 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 less can be more no no doubt about it I mean from a road racing perspective, which is really where my background is, I saw lots of road racers chasing power as a way of going faster, 
And what they ended up doing was just spending more and more money replacing motors and not going that much faster for the amount of money they spent where, you know, had they spent the time and effort and the money on chassis development or driver development, they would have seen much bigger returns in terms of their, their lap times dropping. So definitely to, 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 to me, power is actually the last place I look to go faster with because it generally comes at a higher cost and introduces more potential reliability issues or broken parts like you're speaking of. So uh, I always want yeah. to start with uh, the cheap and easy stuff. And a lot of people just want to skip right to the power because power is sexy, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's the exciting part. It is. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to part. sort of, um, it's hard to get excited on an internet forum if, if you've got stock power. Uh, you know, that, and I think, not really... right. And, and our videos do exactly that because we don't, you know, we build, we, when we built that 2JZ M3, it made, you know, 550 on race gas at the tire or 450 on pump and people were disappointed. But that car is fantastic on the street because of that. If I had put thousand horsepower turbo on it, like you said, it's a miserable car to drive. And I think that is a huge message that so few people promote and, and advocate for is where is your power band, right? Like, yes, we're yeah. not talking about six, seven liter, you know, huge displacement V8s that we're, we're putting turbos on and that still can spool up by 3,500 RPM. We're, we're talking about small displacement engines that we're trying to make a ton of power out of, which in turn just makes them make it for a thousand, 2000 RPM. And then you're left with nothing underneath. And, but yeah, you're still made a thousand horsepower. Look at, I've made a thousand. I'm here. I'm, I'm ready to party. I, I've done my dyno and then I go drive my car home and it wants to kill me because I can't really, you know, modulate the throttle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, all of those things that you don't know until you actually get the opportunity to experience it. Uh, Dave, just to, to your point, And again, like couldn't, couldn't agree more in terms of trying to improve your, your lap times in a road race application with power, uh, it's kind of like hitting it with a big hammer. Yeah, it's effective to a point. I 100% agree. I think if you've got a budget to spend, particularly if you're a novice driver, every time the best way to improve your lap times is to pour that money into fuel, tyres and entry fees yeah. and get laps, just get laps under your belt. Uh, beyond that, suspension, brakes, that, that, that's really the easiest place to find lap time but also make your car that much more enjoyable on the track. Exactly. And the the other bit I wanted to mention here which is easy to overlook is if you've got a stock car or a slightly modified car, maybe your suspension setup's not dialed in properly and and maybe it's it's a little a little bit of a handful to actually drive. If you go and add another 50, 100, 200 horsepower to that, all that's going to do is magnify all of the evil handling aspects and is going to take a car that was barely manageable in stock form and turn it into an evil handling nightmare. And you're only opening yourself up for, for an accident, uh, which obviously no one wants. So a, again, it can be hard advice to take, uh, but uh, you know, time and time again, I see people making those mistakes and um, yeah, get a better result with probably less money and also in less time. So really important uh, for people to take that on board. Right, I, I want to just ask a, an, another question, which is always going to be a, a very personal thing, but but both of you have had the opportunity to work on, on a, a fairly broad range of different vehicles. Uh, We've talked about a little bit of this anyway, but for you, when you're looking at choosing a car, the modifications you're going to make to it, what what is it that you're looking for? What, to you guys, makes for a really great car? 
That's a, a, a moving target for me. I mean, uh, it depends on what we're building. Like with our, with the Lexus LS430 that we built recently, which is why I keep bugging you for more uh, UZ updates on the, the motor you should have built and put in your GT86. We tried, we tried. Uh, I, I, I mean, we built that as a streetcar that was just meant to be a little bit more stylish, a little bit more powerful, a little bit better in the corners, you know, just to prove it incrementally and make it an, an enjoyable streetcar without falling into all those pitfalls that we just talked about by making it too stiff and uncomfortable or too loud and uncomfortable or too powerful to the point where, you know, the power band is too narrow. So, um, mm. you know, w my goal with that build, our goal with that build was to, to make it a really cool street cruiser and a highway cruiser. And I think we actually succeeded on that one. That, that car, I think, exceeded our expectations in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah. It, it turned out to very, be a, a really nice road car. And, you know, people are like, oh, why didn't you put a Supra LSD in the rear end? Or why didn't you manual swap it? Well, I don't need those to cruise down the highway with my kids on the way to the zoo on the weekend, which is mostly what I do with that car. So, sure. you know, why make modifications that have no purpose? So really, we just kept it simple. We did supercharge it, which, you know, is actually quite simple to do on that car. Um, not something everyone would do, but you, you could do it in a weekend, actually. In hindsight, I think, Having, if you watched our series, I think you could do that in a weekend. So it's pretty simple yeah. to add that that extra eighty to one hundred wheel horsepower on that car, and then the rest of it was all just like, you know, bolt-on suspension and stuff, a uh, nice lip kit, you know, the right wheel and tire package, and that car was yeah, it was it was perfect. So I, I mean, really, just comes back to what you were saying before: OEM plus nothing too extreme in any one area. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it, for me, it, a lot of it comes down to you know. Building a balanced chassis, you know, obviously, like they've said, there's a moving target. We look at cars, you know, we're in the business of, of creating content. So some cars we choose because we feel they're going to get good views. Some cars we choose because we love them, right? Some cars we want to take to the track. So we constantly have different ideas of what we need to do and why we choose cars for them. But really, ultimately, every build has to come down with balance, right? We we have kind of a, an ethos that we follow and that's, you know, spend a lot of money on suspension and brakes, mm -hmm. um, wheels and tires, and then look at, you know, doing the engine bay and just don't overpower the chassis. I, I find like, I think that's always a, a good message is think of, you know, yep. 90s and Japanese tuners. They, they kind of, for me, hit that magic number of like 500 horsepower is such a great number for a car that will deliver a broad power range that, that, that will be, you know, fun on the street. That's not going to instantly bore you because it's, you know, two weeks down the road, you're still making 500 horsepower and you're like, I want more, right? Yeah. All right. Let's, let's move on because we are getting a little bit uh, long here. So I think we'll, we'll move towards finishing up. So we had a great convo so far, uh, fairly broad ranging. Uh, we've got uh, some questions that we like to ask all of our, our guests at the end, the same questions for every episode, and, and I'd uh, urge both of you to definitely answer. Uh, first of those is what, what's next for you guys in the future and, and Speed Academy? Where, where do you see yourselves headed? Cheaper builds. <laughs> Simplify and make, make cars, I think, more relatable. 
So that, that's certainly, I, I think, where we're headed, trying to create content that uh, appeals to more of the masses. We loved building a 2J and, and you know, at, at a very high level, that Supra that we built, but it's not as appealing, I think, to a, a ton of people as it is taking a Honda Civic and lowering it, putting some, you know, wheels and tires on it and into it. Have a good time with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, yeah. Yeah. To that point, we do have a couple of more affordable Honda builds coming up after these two JDM legends have bankrupt us yes. uh, morally and spiritually, <laughs> not only financially. Um, and, you know, I kind of, I like the idea of going back to our roots in a sense, at least my roots are very much in like simple, bolt-on, reliable builds that you can just go and have fun with in a guilt-free way because you don't have your life savings or your grandmother's life savings tied yeah. up in it. And, uh, yeah. I think our viewers appreciate that, but you know, we also want to challenge ourselves from time to time and do something that will, you know, force us to learn some new things. And we do have some builds planned later this year that are outside of our comfort zone to some extent. So we're not just going to do budget, you know, cheap builds. We do have some really cool stuff coming up that will appeal to more technically minded builders, uh, race racers, you know, the Andre, Andre Simons of the world. So <laughs> we, we, will won't, we won't bore you entirely with simple builds, but we, are, we will do, I think, more simplified builds mm -hmm. 80% of the time. And then the 20% of the time will be more about us challenging ourselves and doing something more technical and, and, you know, something we haven't done before. I think just on that relatable aspect, I, it just it, it came into my mind when you were saying that uh, back when when I was running my Evo three drag car, and and at the time my daily driver was actually a, a dirty old KE seventy Toyota Corolla, and uh, uh, Google that if you don't know what it looks like, four door boxy Corolla from the eighties, and uh, we had a four AGE or GZE, the supercharged block Ooh. with a silver top 20-valve head and a hand-me-down turbo off uh, off my old Evo. So it was a uh, HKS GT30. Uh, on race gas, uh, it made 500-wheel horsepower. So it was no slouch. Wow. Uh, and, and we would put both of those cars in these car shows all around New Zealand, and they were side-by-side. Side. And it was interesting to watch because... Nine out of ten people that would come past our stand would spend more time looking at the K70 Corolla than than my Evo, and and I think that just literally came down to the fact that it, it looked like it was more achievable, more attainable uh, than than the Evo, which is you know hundred percent correct. That that Evo at the time was was probably I, I'm guessing the the cost of a a modest two or three bedroom house and uh, fortunately I never ever added up the bills but no one wants to <laughs> no, no you never do that, that. So, don't do that yeah. alright next question uh, any advice you could give to a, a younger version of yourselves you've had a, a long both of you long and illustrious career I'm not calling you old by the way uh, but you've done a lot of things in your time and it's not your conventional career path. Is there any advice you could sort of give to to young guys or girls out there, maybe wanting to to become uh, world famous YouTube stars like yourselves, uh, to fast track their their experience? Work hard, 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 and just take more chances. If I could talk to my you know young self, I would just say be a little bit more aggressive. Don't be as conservative with with life choices. <laughs> Drive fast and take chances, kids. That's the, that's the way to the top. <laughs> that's right. No, uh, I, I would say, um, you know, learn, go and learn. Don't just have the dream of I'm going to become a YouTuber. And then like I see a lot of people do, sit at home and wringing, your, wringing their hands about it and, 
shooting videos and never uploading them and then you know not getting any feedback because they're afraid of what the comment section might light up with i would say just the sooner you start the better just do it with anything and just repeat it and you will get better at it by doing it so like i would say stop sort of thinking about it start doing it and you will learn by doing and uh, i i i think to me, the most obvious sort of sh- shortfall I see with people that are trying to start their own YouTube channels is they just don't upload enough. They don't produce sure. enough to learn at a fast enough rate to get better. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we generally, as as uh, humans, don't like to fail. And and I, I, I get that because I don't like failing. It's not a lot of fun. But uh, when we fail, we learn so unfortunately, it's kind of a natural uh, requirement in order to actually get good at something. The other, the other sort of uh, rule of thumb is, you know, it takes 10,000 hours to achieve mastery in, yes, in anything. Yes, yes. And, and uh, becoming a successful YouTuber is, is probably no different. Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, solid advice. Just get out there and do it and uh, worry a little bit less about failing and and I think we could apply that uh, mentality probably to just about anything. Quit with the analysis paralysis, jump in and actually learn while you're doing it. And uh, real quick, real real quick too, just remember that it does take time to become, you know, successful. And like you said, the 10,000 hours, I think it's, it's one of those things. There's so many people, you know, will spend a month doing something and then feel like they're not where they're supposed to be and they give up, right? Like it it is, the world still Mm. rewards hard work. Yes, there's, there's luck that I, I think plays into a lot of things, but hard work first and foremost is one of those things. And without, you know, realizing that have realistic goals, you're not going to become a youtube star in a month right like it's mm. just it's just one of absolutely it's it's the old story of the overnight success that took 10 years to get there yeah. and, and we don't talk about the 10 years we see what is supposedly that overnight success but uh yeah that that's not really what actually went on behind the scenes so yeah anything that's worth doing is going to take effort and it's going to take time and it's going to take persistence Right, last question for today. If uh, people listening would like to check out uh, what Speed Academy do, follow along, where should they do so? Well, of course, there's YouTube. And uh, if you search the term Speed Academy, you'll find our channel there. Uh, That's really where most of our content goes these days. But we're also on Instagram. Just is it just Speed Academy on Instagram? We're on Facebook as well. Uh, and, and we have a website. If you actually, you know, care to read, uh, speed.academy, no.com. It is just www.speed.academy. Uh, you can check it out there. There's a, a, a ton of really good stories. Uh, how to case swap your Honda. How to mm-hmm. case swap. How to LS swap your How to case swap your, uh, yeah. your FRS. Yeah. How to, <laughs> how to beam swap your old Toyota. Yeah, uh, so. Those are probably our most read stories, actually. Anything engine swap related is our strongest content on the website and probably pretty strong on on YouTube as well. But um, cool. Yeah, that's that's where to find us. We're on TikTok, too. I think we've we've uploaded 11 times and now we've just stopped. You're doing some teenage girl dances. Exactly. eh? I'm not a good enough dancer. So we we just stopped. All right. Well, we'll put some uh, links to your teenage guild answers on TikTok in the uh, in the show notes as well. All right, guys. Thanks uh, heaps for joining us today. It's been a great conversation, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing what your uh, relatable and affordable content is in the near future. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks Andre. Andre. Appreciate it.
All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute goldmine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.